For the past few weeks, we've been looking at uh, four passages of Scripture found in First and Second Thessalonians, which talk about Jesus coming back and and trying to get a, a better understanding of what's going to happen when Jesus uh, comes back. The First uh, and Second Thessalonians are are two brief letters. The Apostle Paul wrote to a young church, a relatively new church that he had started before in the city of Thessalonica. And they had questions, and he's answering those questions. And some of them centered around what happens when Jesus comes back. So go ahead and open your Bible as we wrap this up today to the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We were looking at that last Sunday and did not have time to finish it. So we're going to do that today. And I'm only going to get through half of what I'd planned for today, but we're going to stop anyway. Um, so go ahead. Let me see your Bible. You got printed electronic copies? Amen. Always bring God's Word to worship because we study His Word. He speaks to us by the Holy Spirit through His Word. So always bring God's Word with you to worship. I shared with you last Sunday that for me personally, while I've been studying these passages, it's really been encouraging. Strengthen my faith. And I, I pray it's done that for you. One other thing it's done is, is I think it's really helped me even more than I already did understand from God's perspective what's going on in our culture. I mean, we look at all the things happening in the West, in our country in particular, and, uh, you know, it can be confusing, it can be scary, it just, you know, a lot of changes. And these passages have done a lot to help me reframe my understanding of the culture today and see it through God's eyes from his perspective and and that's really helpful and encouraging for me and I'm praying the same thing happens for you that's what I want is for you to see things the way God does and for your faith to be encouraged now last Sunday we said in this passage he says when when Jesus comes back two things are going to be happening in fact these two things have to happen in order to for Jesus to come back there will be an apostasy, a great rebellion against Jesus and who he is and what he teaches. And there will be a man of lawlessness. Um, John in First and Second John calls him the Antichrist. So let's look at that and we'll pick up where we left off in chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians at verse 3. He says, let no one in any way deceive you. For it will not come, and referring to what he talked about in the earlier verses, the second coming, Jesus coming back. That will not happen unless the apostasy comes first. The NIV translates it rebellion. The King James, the falling away, that has to happen. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction at the end of the verse. In the King James, I think he's called the son of perdition is how that is Translated. So let's, let's look into this a little bit more and understand it. Last Sunday I said that this apostasy, this rebellion, this falling away, the word translated uh, from the original language was the idea of a, a political rebellion. That's its original meaning, a political rebellion. rebellion. And what the, what the Bible is saying is that as human history marches forward, there will be this increasing rebellion against the person of Jesus, who he is, what the Bible tells us about who Jesus is, what Jesus claimed about himself, what the Father said about Jesus. 
and about Jesus teaching his, his truth, especially as, as it relates to sin and to salvation, to the gospel, to ethics and morality, especially sexual morality. And this man of lawlessness, we said, think of him as the epitome of this rebellion, of this apostasy, this falling away. And uh, he's, he's the, uh, a prominent, powerful spokesperson for it, if you will. And we looked at some verses elsewhere in the New Testament because the Apostle John, Jesus' disciple John, writing about this in First and Second John, refers to the man of lawlessness as the Antichrist. It's the only place you find Antichrist mentioned in the Bible. It's not in Revelation. It's in First and Second John. That's referring to the same person that Paul calls the man of lawlessness. Jesus talked about many false teachers. Jesus never used the word man of lawlessness. He never used the word antichrist. Jesus said there will be a lot of false teachers. These are all referring to the same thing. And we have on the screen for you some of the verses we looked at last week, just to remind you quickly. In chapter 2, John writes, many antichrists have appeared. So yes, toward the end, there will be a man of lawlessness and antichrist, but that's not the only one. There will be many along the way. There have been and there are even today. In chapter 4, this is the spirit of antichrist, of which you have heard is coming, the one coming at the second coming, and now already is in the world. So it's not new. And then in our text today, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, if you look at verse 7, he says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. We, we talked about this last Sunday. And I don't want to develop it, but just remind you that there are many passages in the New Testament, several, that make it clear that the last hour, the last days, is the entire time period between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. When you read the New Testament and you see last hours and last days, if you think of just the moments immediately preceding Jesus' return, you miss it. Many verses just make it clear that that entire time period of the church age of, of history between when Jesus came at Bethlehem, died on the cross, was raised from the dead, and ascended to the Father, and at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came, all the way over to the time Jesus comes back. That's the last days, the last hours we're living in it. Your great-grandparents were living in it. And during that time, there will be this mystery of lawlessness at work. There will be many antichrists, and it will all intensify as we get closer to the second coming. The way that shows up varies from time to time in different parts of the world, but it's here. And I, I, so I want, to, I want to jump into that a little bit. What, what does this spirit of Antichrist, what is this lawlessness? And think about lawlessness. It means without law. The man of lawlessness associated with the apostasy, the rebellion against Jesus and his teaching, is, is a rebellion against the law of God. It's a rebellion against the truth of Scripture. It's saying we're going to go in a different direction. And that's always been the case in our history. It's just more, more intense in some periods than in other periods, in some places in the world than in other places. And here in the West, in Europe and America, in recent decades, we're really seeing it in ways maybe the decades before that we didn't see it. 
And a couple of things from the scripture about what all of this looks like. Here's the first thing. It, it, what's going to happen is that heresy will be rampant. What do I mean by heresy? Heresy is a rejection of the truth and acceptance of a lie. Heresy says that what is orthodox, and by orthodox we don't mean conservative or liberal. Orthodox Christian teaching simply means what has the overwhelming majority of Christians always believed? What has the Bible always taught? It's the historic, biblical, orthodox truth. That's all it means. Heresy says we reject that. And we have our own truth, a new truth if you will. Now, here's the thing you have to understand. Heresy always begins in the church and grows, then becoming part of culture. And culture and certain aspects of the church work together to promote heresy. It's a religious thing. So it starts in some quasi-religious community. So look in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians at verse 4. Talking about this man of lawlessness, this spirit of lawlessness who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or religion or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God. It's not that he says he is a God, but he speaks like one. He's a religious figure. This is, this is a religious movement. This where its genesis always occurs. Every heresy in Christian history started with some French group or some part of the church that got off track. That's why it's called heresy. Speaks as God in the temple. The temple's not referring to some rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. In the New Testament, Paul on multiple occasions said, we as God's people are the temple of God. More than once he said, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The church, all of God's people, we are the temple of God. God is growing up a holy temple, referring to his people. It's a way of saying this movement has, has its origin in spiritual circles, in religious circles, in, in, in a very corrupt, distorted, extreme, liberal understanding of Christianity that rejects the historic biblical Christian faith in some ways. And begin speaking spiritually with the authority of God as a religious figure saying, now here's the real truth. Here's what God really thinks, how God really feels. And so think about our situation today in the West. Recent survey. 28% of Protestant pastors, so Protestant church pastors, from very conservative to very liberal, 28% of them, one in four, today say that it is not morally wrong for a person to identify as a gender different than their physical birth. 23% of Protestant pastors today, one in four, say that it is not morally wrong to have surgery to change a person's sex, even though the historic biblical faith, what God has always said is God created 
male and female. And in some of the more liberal mainline denominations, those percentages are off the charts. In the United Methodist Church today, there is actually a drag queen pastor who says things from the pulpit I will not say because they are too vulgar, too crude, too unbiblical, and too sinful to be repeated. But that drag queen pastor is celebrated in certain circles. That's simply an illustration, an example, if you will, of what I mean when I say that this heresy that says we reject biblical orthodox Christianity in favor of what we want and what we like is a religious movement. That's where it starts. And then it and the world work together. This is an example of that. What he tells us in verse 9 is that the evil one, Satan himself, is behind all of it. Verse 9, that is the one who's coming, referring to this lawless one, whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. In the very beginning of Genesis, when Satan approached Adam and Eve and tempted them, did God really say this? Did God really mean that? That has always been his tactic. It still is. And that's how heresy works. And in our culture, now in other parts of the world it's different, but in the West, in Europe and in North America, it's happening in a couple of areas very prominently. One is what, and this has been going on for decades, what we call the exclusivity of the gospel. The exclusivity of the gospel. The book of Acts said there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. The Bible over and over says there is only one path to God. There's only one path to heaven. That's orthodox biblical teaching, historic teaching. But heresy says, and it's prominent today, it has been for decades, no, there are many paths to God. There are many ways to God. All religions lead to the same place ultimately. That's heresy. It's a religious movement that then is adopted in philosophy and in culture. In more recent decades, the movement has centered around sexual ethics and morality. And that's all the discussion today regarding LBGTQ plus communities and gender identity issues. And while it may start as a spiritual thing, as a religious thing within some distorted version of Christianity, in time you see that liberal, distorted Christianity working with, with, with politics and law and regulations written by bureaucrats, Economic pressure, economic sanctions intended to either persuade or punish if you don't conform to the new orthodoxy. About eight years ago, 2015 in England, there was a young man, he was a student at Sheffield University. He was in their uh, social work degree program, wanting to be a social worker. And doing well and one day the university expelled him from the program. You know why? 
Well, think 2014, 2015, that's when the debate was going on about gay marriage. On his Facebook page, not in a mean-spirited way, he simply listed two or three Bible verses on his personal Facebook page that talk about homosexuality and said the Bible says that homosexual behavior is sinful and that gay marriage is contrary to God's plan. And the university said because of that, you are no longer fit to be a student in this university, and they expelled him. He sued. And by the way, in America, we have a little more constitutional and legal protection than they have in England and Canada. They have some freedoms, but it's a little stouter in the states than in those countries. He sued, and he eventually won. It's one of the few free speech wins in the courts in England. You jump ahead a few years to now, to this year, 2023, that same young man, he's still young, but he's older. He's got a career doing well, and he sees an ad for a job, and he applies, and guess what? They offer him the job. It's with England's National Health Service. They have national health care, and so he applied for a job, and they interviewed him and other candidates, and they said, you are the best qualified candidate. They offered him the job. Same young man, offered him the job. After offering him the job, someone in administration discovered his Facebook post from 2014 about homosexuality, and they withdrew the job offer and said, you can only have this job if you will commit to both embracing and promoting homosexuality. Otherwise, you're disqualified from working in the healthcare system in England. He sued. That case is still in the courts. We don't know what the outcome will be. So when I talk about this, this distortion and this rebellion, this apostasy that rejects historic biblical truth, that eventually marries with politics and economic pressures and all of that, and men of lawlessness and many antichrists, lead, different leaders and different spokespersons and different power, powerful people, all culminating in some real power toward the end, working to either persuade you to change or punish you if you don't. That is exactly what the Bible is talking about, and that is our culture. So one thing that will be prominent that as part of this lawlessness, this apostasy, this rebellion is just the, the rampant nature of heresy, rejection of historic, biblical, orthodox Christian teaching and truth to create a new one that everybody likes. The second characteristic is that the masses, not everybody, but the masses of the population will be blinded by sin. Look in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, starting at verse 10. He says, And with all the deception of wickedness, the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, did not love the truth of God, which leads them to salvation. They rebel against that. Verse 11, For this reason... God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false, believe what is a lie, what is not true. 
in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but notice this, took pleasure in wickedness, took pleasure in wickedness. He talks about the deceptive nature of sin. It blinds. The Bible makes it clear that sin blinds us. Why, why do you think it is so difficult to change a bad habit or a sinful habit? Because it becomes addictive. Because it blinds you. It deceives you. It lies to you. That's what sin does. And Jesus said, Satan, who is behind all this, is the father of all lies. He talks about them taking pleasure in these sins, these things that God's law says are sinful, but this new orthodoxy, the culture says, no, they're not. God doesn't really feel that way. They take pleasure. And the Bible makes it clear that sin is fun for a season. For season. He talks about them being deluded and that they believe the lie. They really, really, really believe what they are saying. And he says they will perish. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about the sins that were very popular in the culture of the of, of Greeks and Romans of the Gentile world in the first century and before that. And, and, he, and, and he says they reject what is natural, what God says, and, and they, they do all these sinful things. And, and he says in there on three occasions in that one chapter that God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not right. God, listen, if you want to go the wrong way, God will let you. If you want to believe a lie, God will let you. If you want to reject the truth, if you want to reject the gospel, if you want to reject Jesus, if you want to destroy your life, God will let you. Now, he will... Try to stop you. He will speak to you. He will love you. He will send people into your life. He will convict you. He will make you think. But God will never make you do what's right. See, we are not in philosophy. We're not deterministic. We don't believe that God determines what you do. We're not Calvinistic. We're not Reformed. We believe God gives you free will to choose. God has determined what happens if you make those choices. But he created you free to make those choices. And if you want to go the route of a deceived, blind, depraved mind, God, with a broken heart, will let you. And so you think about today in the West, here in North America, the whole debate around LBGTQ plus and sexual identity, gender identity. That's our culture. It's what he's talking about. Now, what's Jesus going to do about all this? 
If this is the culture and, and, it, and, and, and it intensifies as time goes by and in some parts of the earth it's worse than in other parts and the issues here may not be issues in another continent but the issues on that continent may not be issues here but it's all a rebellion against who Jesus is and claims and teaches in various forms and shapes. When Jesus comes back what is he going to do about all this? Jesus is going to put an end to all of it. He's going to put an end to all the evil. In our text, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, referring to the man of lawlessness, notice what it says. He says, Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord, who Jesus, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, by Jesus coming back, put an end to it all. In part, Paul is reframing what the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament said in chapter 11, verse 4, says that he will strike the earth with a rod, with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Isaiah wrote that 700 years before Jesus came the first time. That's what Paul is talking about in this passage. It's what Jesus' disciple John wrote about in the book of Revelation in chapter 19, talking about the end and the second coming of Jesus. He writes, He, Jesus, when he comes back, is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called what? The Word of God, the breath of his mouth or the breath of his lips as Isaiah said and the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen white and clean were following him on white horses look at the next three verses and from his mouth from Jesus mouth comes a sharp sword the book of Hebrews in the New Testament the word of God is more powerful than a two-edged sword Sword is a common analogy in Scripture for the Word of God, for the spoken Word of Jesus, the written Word of Jesus. He will come with a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, all of this is talking about the same thing, that when Jesus comes back, he will put an end to it all simply by speaking. Do you really think when Jesus comes back, he's going to be riding a horse and his robe will be covered with blood and there will be a literal physical sword coming out of his mouth and all of his enemies, he'll strike them by moving his head like this and with that sword coming out of his mouth, he's going to kill all the evil people. Do you think that's what's going to happen? No. It's not going to be an army on this side of a battlefield and Jesus is at the front of it and over here is another army and Satan's at the head of it and they're shooting at each other. Come on, people. This is all biblical, beautiful, poetic, picturesque, symbolic language of saying that when Jesus comes back, He comes back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And as the New Testament says, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. 
It's saying that when he comes back, he speaks. And just as God in ancient times spoke and the universe appeared, just as Jesus stood before the tomb of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth, and that dead man got up and walked out alive, We saw it in the very first sermon in this series from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a... Do you know your Bible? With a shout. And when he does, the dead will be raised. With his breath, he will slay the evil one. It all happens in the blink of an eye as Jesus comes back and all he has to do is Speak because he speaks as God Almighty, as King of kings and Lord of lords. We make this so complicated, but it's not complicated. We're the ones who mess it up. It's real simple when you just let it be what it is. And it's so encouraging to know that it won't always be this way. But it's also so frightening to know that we have loved ones who are not ready. And for them, it'll be a day of destruction and judgment. Here's the question Are you ready? Are you? In verse 12, he says, if you're not ready, you will be judged. The second sermon in this series back in June in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, he says, you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord, the second coming, will come just like a thief in the night while they are saying peace and safety. And then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. You see, even in our culture, as messed up as it is today, most people in America today, are they're not hostile toward religion. They're not hostile toward spirituality. They're not hostile toward Christianity. They're indifferent. They don't care. Most of the people you drive by on Sunday morning not going to church, guess what? They haven't thought about it that morning. They're indifferent. That's our culture. Now, hostile towards certain beliefs, but as a whole, they don't care. And so as he said in 1 Thessalonians 5, they're saying peace and safety. They're not worried about it. They're, Jesus, they're not worried about any of it. And so he says when Jesus comes back, for those who are not ready, they will be caught by surprise like a thief. They are going to be in absolute shock. But for those who are ready, those who are true believers in Jesus and disciples of Jesus, it's going to be a very, very different story because in the very next verse, the very next verse in 1 Thessalonians 5 Verse 4, he says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. You see, the idea of Jesus coming back is like a thief in the night. That's not for everybody. That's for the lost because they're shocked and surprised. They're not expecting him to show up. But he doesn't come like a thief for us. 
because we know he's coming and we're ready we don't know when he's coming but we know he's coming so we're not surprised we're not we're ready we we he says you in verse 5 for you are all sons of light and sons of day we are not of the night nor of the darkness so which group are you in are you in the ready group or the not ready group the group that will be saying hallelujah or the group that will be in shock and saying what see he tells us at the end of chapter 2 in 2nd Thessalonians that if you're ready what are we supposed to be doing in the meantime in verse 15 be strong in verses 16 and 17 be courageous in chapter 3, verse 1, be evangelistic, share the gospel, witness, invite people to church. Don't walk around afraid and intimidated. Hold your head up, as we said a few weeks ago. Hold your head up. You know how it works out. And be courageous and speak his name. The Gospels. The Gospels tell us that when Jesus comes back, he's going to divide humanity into two groups. We saw this in another message the other day. When Jesus comes back, he's only going to find two groups on earth, not three, not four, not five, just two, those who are ready and those who are not. Those who belong to him and those who don't. Those who believe the truth and those who accept it a lie. It's only two groups. Jesus said when he comes back, he's going to divide humanity into two groups. There'll be one on his left and one on his right. And to those on his left, he will say, depart from me into eternal fire, for I never knew you. And to those on his right, he will say, enter into the joy of your Lord. So I ask you again, which group will you be in? Which words will you hear? And you won't get to decide on that day which group you're in. Because the Bible says when Jesus comes back and all of this happens, it's in the twinkling of an eye. As fast as you can blink, it all happens. No, no, no time to, to change sides. You, you pick your group now. You, you pick your side now. Now, Jesus doesn't determine which group you're in. He's inviting you to be in the saved group. But what Jesus has determined is if you're in the saved group, you'll hear him say, well done, enter into the joy of your Lord. What Jesus has determined is if you're in the not ready group, you will hear him say, depart from me into eternal fire, for I never knew you. And right now, I don't mean tomorrow or next week. I mean right now. There are some of you in this room. Some of you watching on television or live stream. Right now. Who need to make the decision to get out of the unprepared group and step into the prepared group. Who need to commit your life to Jesus Christ. We have pastors coming to stand here at the altar. I want us all to stand all over the room. Everyone standing, no one leaving. Pastors coming to the front. We're going to sing a song in just a minute. And I'm inviting you 
to make a decision to join the Jesus group, the prepared group, the ready group, the saved group. I'm going to ask you to leave where you are standing and walk to the front of this room and take one of these pastors by the hand and say, today I'm choosing Jesus. You say, why? Because there's no such thing as a secret follower of Jesus. And I'm asking you to come and openly give your life to Christ. And these pastors will help you do that. You make the decision. If you've already done that, but you've not publicly taken your stand for Jesus, come to one of these pastors and say, I've done that, but I need to let the world know that I'm a follower of Jesus. Stand with him publicly. And biblically, the next step is for you to be baptized. Baptism doesn't make you a Christian, but it's a way of saying to the world, to those who see you baptized, he or she gave his life to Jesus. She gave her life to Jesus. Come and ask for baptism. To join this church, become a member, come to one of these pastors and say, I want to join this church. The kneeling bench that's all around this altar. Come and get on your knees and pray for your courage, for your strength, for your boldness, for your evangelism, for your witnessing. Most of us in this room have people we love, people we care about, people we like. And right now, they're in the wrong group. And we need to be praying for them. We need to be talking to them. So as soon as we sing, you come.